All right, if you all have a Bible, if you want to open up to Mark 8, we're going to be reading verses 22 through 29. And it's also on the back of your worship guide. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Oh, Christ. It is amazing that you would love us the way that you do. And that in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of the way that each and every single one of us have run from you and have rebelled against you, that you would set aside all the riches of heaven, all the peace that you had, all the praise that was yours, that you would become a baby, that you'd be born to a poor family, that people would assume that your parents were lying about your birth, that you would live your whole life essentially having nothing, being misunderstood and mistreated until one day you were shamefully executed on a cross. All for us. For your Father's glory and so that we might be welcomed in as your family. God, I pray for these students and I pray for myself that over these coming weeks, as we prepare for Christmas, that you would still our hearts and our minds, and that you would fill us with wonder. How can it be that there is a God who would love us this much? And I pray for us tonight. You've brought these students here. They've just heard your word. But I pray for them, and I pray for myself, that you would give us ears to hear from you. The last thing that these people need is to hear from a mere man. They They have come here to hear from their God. So speak, Lord, we pray. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I am blown away that it is almost Christmas time and that this is, in fact, our last college gathering of the semester. And I know uh, it feels like we were just getting started. And it's a little bit like uh, that time where John Mayer and Taylor Swift were dating. Like, we didn't really know what a good thing we had until it was already gone, and we didn't really get a chance to enjoy it. That's kind of how I feel about this semester. Was that, was that okay? Did that land? Um, for real, for a lot of you guys, with finals looming, uh, or congrats to my Panther friends out here, uh, we all wish we were you, right? Finals behind, congratulations. 
With finals looming or papers ahead of you, I know that there's a lot of different places that you could be. You should probably be cramming for an exam or gathering notes from friends for all of the days of class that you now know that you should not have skipped, right? But we're really grateful that you're here with us. And I I love college, obviously. I've been doing college ministry for almost 10 years. And one of my favorite parts of the college semester is like the last week of school. Because let's face it, right? College friends are just way better than high school friends. Like you you thought your high school friends were great until you met your college friends. And so you want to soak up this last week and hang out with your college friends. And I just remember the last week of school, I would stay out as late as I possibly could, trying to soak up as much hang time as I could before I knew that my friends and I, we wouldn't see each other for a couple more months. And that last week, there's some pretty interesting convos that happened, particularly late at night. So maybe one of you guys or a number of you guys will face a situation like this in the week ahead, Okay. So I imagine that you're hanging out with your friends late at night, and all of a sudden, you're like, you know what? I'm kind of hungry. I think I'm going to go for a sonic run. And you're scanning the room, but there's only one person that you're actually looking at, right? Because there's only one person that you actually care to go to sonic with. Everybody else, they're just kind of periphery. Then you lock eyes with this person, and they look at you, and they say, yeah, yeah, I could really go for an Eminem blast right now. And then your moron friend Greg's like, you know what, I'm really hungry. Uh, Hold on a sec. I'm going to grab a little bit of cash. And you guys make that quick eye contact, and you're like, we got to get out the door before Greg gets his money. And so you slide out the door, and your friends, they all kind of give the side eye. They know exactly what's going on, even if you guys won't talk about it, right? So you guys cruise in your car, and you head over to Sonic. And let's be clear, okay? This isn't the first time that you guys have found yourself at Sonic late at night after most of your friends have gone about working on their homework or gone to bed. And let's also be clear, you aren't the first guy and girl to go on a Sonic run, right? This has been happening for generations and generations. This is how your parents met, okay? There's something going on between you two, even if you won't talk about it, but your roommate, let's say a couple days ago, says, hey, is something happening between you guys? Like, are y'all, are y'all, are y'all dating? You say, no, 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 we're just hanging out. We're just, we're just hanging out. We're, we're friends. And as you're sitting there at Sonic, slowly undoing all of the hard work that you put in at the gym as that delicious ice cream makes its way through your veins, You start to have this great conversation. You start to go over all the memories that you've made this semester, all the inside jokes, talking about finals, what you're going to do over the break. And then suddenly, one of you guys says, you know, I've really enjoyed getting to know you this semester. You know what? I've really enjoyed getting to know you, too. Yeah, it's been been so great just talking to you. And yeah, I know. It's it's been really great talking to you, too. And you know what? You're not going to believe this, but my roommate asked me a couple days ago, like if we were dating, isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's so crazy. But you know what? You know what? Like, you're not going to believe this, but like a couple of my friends have been asking me that too. That's so weird. I mean, like, can't guys and girls just be friends and just hang out? No. <laughs> I know. And then this, this crucial moment comes. And there's a, there's a couple moments where you sit in the car and you feel yourself just sweat all over. 
And then one person takes that awkward leap, right? And they say, well, when other people ask you that, what do you say? What do you say? Who am I to you? And if you say, you're such a great friend, I think of you just like a sister. You've chosen a particular path, my friend, and it's going to be a lonely and desolate road. What you say next to that question, who am I to you, is going to determine absolutely everything about your relationship from here on out. If you just say to your friends, you can say to your friends, we're just hanging out and seeing where things go. But when the moment comes, when that DTR button is officially pressed, you better have an answer ready. Who am I to you? And I tell you all of these things to tell you that this is exactly where we've come to in the book of Mark. For eight chapters, Mark has been driving us to this question, who is Jesus, right? What is his identity? Jesus was not teaching like the scribes and the Pharisees. He taught like one who had authority, like he was the author of the story. He wasn't just performing some miraculous acts. He was doing things that only God could do. He made waves calm in the, in the middle of an unimaginable storm. He called thousands of demons out of a man and threw them into pigs, and those pigs ran off a cliff. He raised a dead girl to life. What Mark has been doing is he's been trying to remove any question about who Jesus is. He is the promised one. He's the humble king over absolutely everything. He is God-made flesh. And now we're at the turning point in the story. This is the question. This is the moment upon which all of the book of Mark hinges. Jesus is going to pull his disciples out of this village, and he's going to ask them point blank, who am I to you? And after that moment, after Peter answers on behalf of all of the disciples, absolutely everything changes. But before we get there, there's a couple things that you guys need to know. At the beginning of chapter 8, it's clear that the, that the disciples don't quite understand who Jesus is yet. So Jesus has just fed 4,000 people. Yes, and he's already fed 5,000 a couple chapters earlier. And they start discussing the fact that they've hopped onto this boat and they've forgotten to bring enough miracle bread. And you can just kind of Imagine them like blame shifting along the way, like you said you were going to do it, bro. No, man, you told him before and I overheard you until finally like mild-mannered, calm Thaddeus is like, yeah, guys, it's my fault. I'm going to take the blame for it. And you guys are thumbing through your Bibles right now to see if Thaddeus was a disciple. Yes, Thaddeus was a disciple, mild-mannered. Verse 17, just before we get to our passage, this is what Jesus says. Jesus, aware of this, says to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. 
And he said to them, do you not yet understand? They've just seen Jesus feed 4,000 from seven loaves of bread. And they're freaking out because they forgot to bring bread. And they might get hungry. And who knows what they would do if they got hungry and didn't have enough bread with Jesus around. And Jesus says to them, having eyes, do you not see? which is the perfect segue into our story tonight. So let's pick back up in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. So Jesus, he takes this blind man. He leads him away from everyone. He leads him out of the village, and he spits in his eyes. Why Jesus did that? I have absolutely no idea. I read a bunch of commentaries. They all had lots of different speculations. Suffice it to say, nobody's really sure. But then the strangest thing happens, right? Jesus kind of like sort of helps the guy, right? His miracle half works. The guy can see, but he sees people like trees walking. In other words, he can see, but he hasn't comprehended exactly what he's seeing. He's seeing, but he's not perceiving. Then Jesus lays his hands on the man again, and it says he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And let's be crystal clear about something before we move on. Jesus didn't somehow mess up on this miracle. You don't let a guy rot in the grave for four days and bring him back to life and ever need a mulligan, right? This two-stage healing is just like everything that Jesus ever does and says, completely intentional. And what Mark is doing is he's setting us up to see exactly what Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples and to us. Let's keep going. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. So Jesus, he takes his disciples 25 miles north. They're away from everyone. And he pulls them out of the village. He gets them alone. And he asked them first, who do the people say that I am? And their first response is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is an awesome guy. He was leading a national revival, right? People looked at him like he was the first prophet speaking on behalf of the Lord to come for Israel for hundreds of years. In Matthew 11, Jesus himself says that among those born among, born among women, there's been no one greater than John. This was really high praise. And they continue on. They say, others say Elijah. Now, Elijah, he was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He was a dude so holy that 2 Kings chapter 2 tells us that he doesn't actually die, right? 
He gets called up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Now that is a freaking awesome funeral. Who wouldn't want to go see that? Malachi tells us that before this great and awesome day of the Lord comes, God is going to send back the prophet Elijah. So when people say that Jesus is Elijah, what they're meaning is that God's promises, they are finally coming to pass. Jesus, he's really like one of the greatest prophets, maybe the best prophet that has ever lived. So who do the people say that Jesus is? He's one of the greatest men to ever walk the face of the earth. He is a man who really seems to know God and not fear people. He's a remarkable teacher. He's saying some really powerful things. And then in verse 29, Jesus turns the question directly at each of the disciples. Not anymore, who do the people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? This is the moment Jesus is asking his disciples, who am I to you? And I have to tell you, there is literally no more important question in the entire universe. You know, as you guys are in college, you're wrestling with lots of important questions, right? What am I going to major in? Should I join this fraternity or sorority? Who are my friends going to be? What am I going to spend my life doing? Where am I going to live? Who or if I'm going to get married? But I got to tell you, as much as you may worry and think about and work towards answering those questions, All of those concerns, they end when you die. But this question, the ramifications of how you answer this question, they carry on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And in that moment, when you have to answer that question, it doesn't matter what your parents think about Jesus. It doesn't matter what your friends think about Jesus. It doesn't matter what your professors believe about Jesus. It doesn't even matter what this church preaches about Jesus. What matters is how you personally answer that question, who is Jesus? And I have to believe that if God led you to be in this room tonight, that he is meaning for you, yes, you, to be wrestling with the implications of what that means There are probably a lot of you guys who, if you're honest with yourselves, you might answer like some of the people in Mark chapter 8, right? Who might answer a lot like some of people in our culture today. Jesus was a profoundly great teacher. Jesus had some awesome things to say. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a great principle. Listen, there are a lot of people who like and admire Jesus. Just listen to a few of these quotes, okay? Gandhi said, I have regarded Jesus of Nazareth as one amongst the mighty teachers that the world has had. I shall say to the Hindus that your lives will be incomplete unless you reverently study the teachings of Jesus. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Jesus Christ belonged to the true race of prophets. He saw with an open eye the mystery of the soul. Albert Einstein said, I am enthralled by the luminous figure of Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers. What an awesome word, right? However artful. But none of these men, let me be really clear, none of these men for all of their admiration of Jesus would have ever dared call themselves Christians. What separates their admiration of Jesus from faith in Jesus. And what about you? Well, Jesus, or sorry, well, Peter, 
when the question is put to him, he turns to Jesus and he says, you're the Christ. You're the promised one. You're the one that people have been waiting for for generation after generation. And I get to be here and I get to be your friend and I get to see you. Peter doesn't just admire Jesus, right? He thinks that Jesus is the promised Christ, the promised Savior. In Matthew 16, which parallels this story in Mark, Jesus answers back to Peter and he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but our Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And Jesus, I love the fact that he uses the word revealed here. Basically what he's saying to Peter is that God has opened your eyes so that you might see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But the story continues. Verse 31. And he began, Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And I have to be honest with you, as I was studying this passage, this was pretty shocking to me. It says that Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer. And I wanted to see what Matthew 16 said, just to make sure that I wasn't reading this wrongly. And here's what Matthew 16, 21 says. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. In other words, these guys have been following Jesus for a while. They've heard Jesus preach about the coming kingdom of God. They believe that Jesus is that promised king. But they had no idea what Jesus had come to do because he hadn't told them yet. They were beginning to see who he was, but they had no idea what his mission was. And then in verse 32, it says, Jesus, he said this plainly. There's no mistaking what Jesus was telling them here. He doesn't correct Peter's declaration. He accepts it. And now that it's like they have this common language, Jesus takes them and he begins to teach them deeper things. He's saying, yes, I am that king that you've been waiting for, that your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, that generation after generation has longed for and prayed for. But I'm not a king headed to a throne. I'm a king that's headed to a cross. And Jesus, he, he calls himself here the Son of Man, and he does that kind of over and over again in the Gospels. It's one of his favorite titles for himself. And this would have been really familiar to the disciples. Because in Psalm 110, one of these prophecies about the Messiah, they know that the Son of Man, he's going to come and he's going to crush every other king, that he's going to sit at God's right hand. In Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision of one like a Son of Man. And he says this in verse 14, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So who is the son of man? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the everlasting king who will finally and forever put all enemies under his feet. But then the book of Isaiah chapter 53 says that there's going to come one that's a suffering servant that he's going to be despised and rejected by men, that the punishment that would bring us peace is going to fall upon him, that he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, that by his wounds we will be healed. 
And until this moment, until this very moment where Peter confesses the Christ, no one had ever imagined that this glorious son of man coming to conquer everything could possibly be the same person as this suffering servant. Because how can one who is coming to crush all of his enemies be crushed for our iniquities? So the disciples, they're, they're utterly shocked. They have no idea how to comprehend what Jesus is saying. Jesus is predicting his death, but Messiah didn't die, right? If the Christ died, it just proved that he wasn't actually the Christ. Second half of verse 32 says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ and you seem like you have lost your mind. And Jesus rebukes Peter, the same man who has just received about the highest praise that he could have received. And this word rebukes here, it's the same word that Jesus uses to cast out demons. It's not a polite word. And he calls Peter Satan. Why? When Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is alone in the desert and he's being tempted by Satan. And Jesus is being tempted and Satan says, all of this, this kingdom of the earth, I'll give it to you if you'll simply bow down and worship me. Satan is offering Jesus the kingdom of the world without suffering. Jesus had already been tempted with becoming king exactly how everyone expected. As a ruler coming, to take charge and not as a, as, as a humble servant come to suffer and die. And Peter has become, in an absolute instant, Jesus' adversary, the one standing opposed to God's plans, desiring that the kingdom would come without suffering, without a cross. You see, the blind man saw people, but they looked like trees walking. The crowds saw Jesus but they saw a great man, a prophet of the highest caliber. And Jesus, he's seen by Peter. Peter sees Jesus as the rightful king of everything, the heir to the throne of David. But Peter misses what this king has come to do. See, Peter sees, but he doesn't really see. And I have to tell you guys, this is my absolute deepest fear for you and for me that we, like Peter, that we would see but not perceive, that we would hear but we would not understand, that we would look to the world like followers of Christ, that we would even be able to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the promised one of God, but miss absolutely everything that matters. Because if, if we tend to do things that we think that God wants us to do, if we treat other people pretty well, if we're kind to strangers or if we occasionally buy a homeless guy a meal or if we're feeling really compassionate one day and we rake our grandmother's yard, if we go to Bible studies or, or things like this, we can start to think, of course, subconsciously, that we're putting little good deeds kind of in a deposit account with Jesus. That because we're doing what we ought to do, God will probably give us what we want. But if life doesn't play out like that, 
If life doesn't play out the way that we expect and desire, we just like Peter can turn to God and try to rebuke him. I remember this stretch when I was in college and I was trying to follow God really for the first time. And it looked like my parents' marriage was starting to fall apart. There were some really traumatic and terrible things that were happening with my sister. I was working four jobs and I was racking up massive amounts of debt. My fraternity got shut down and kicked off campus. Most of my friends got kicked out of school. I realized I was stuck in a major that I no longer wanted to study. And then this girl that I thought that I was going to marry suddenly cut things off. And I remember sitting alone in my dorm room starting to pray, but thinking, what is the point? I know all of my friends, they say that God loves me and is for me. I know that that's what the Bible says, but it sure doesn't look like it. God, if you are who you say you are, where in the world are you? You see, Jesus, he doesn't play by our rules. Peter wanted Jesus to be a particular kind of savior, for Jesus to conform to his agenda, to what the savior should do. And that's exactly what I wanted to. There's only one problem with that, right? Jesus doesn't meet us on our terms. If he actually is the humble king over everything, he gets to be king. We don't, he doesn't come to us on our, our terms. We come to him on his terms or we don't come to him at all. You see, it's not enough to just admire Jesus. It's not enough to simply confess that Jesus is the Christ. Unless we surrender to him as Lord and King, we don't know him as Christ and as Savior. And this is where it gets really tricky, right? Because this means that we can have all of the right answers, but our hearts aren't actually surrendered. So how do we know that we actually know him? How do we know that when the question comes to us, who do you say that I am, that we can truthfully answer that Jesus is not just the Christ, but that he is the Lord of our lives? Because in Matthew 7, we've talked about it here before, Jesus tells this story that on the last day, there are going to be some people that come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things in your name? And Jesus will turn to them and he will say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. You can say the right things. You can believe the right things and not actually know him. Jesus, never one to spoil a good teaching opportunity, Continues on, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What Jesus is not doing here is simply telling you that you're going to endure some hardships in your life. Like people use that idiotic phrase, this is my cross to bear. That is nothing like what Jesus is saying here. People carrying crosses were condemned criminals headed to their executions. But here's the thing. When the world looks at you, your life and the path that you've chosen as though you were cursed by God. 
as though you were a condemned criminal, condemned to die a terrible death. What Jesus is saying is in that moment when the world thinks that you're insane and doomed, you will actually find life. And here's the thing, you will never find it anywhere else. Remember, we talked about this earlier in the semester, that if you're unwilling to lay down your plans, your dreams, your hopes, your money, your things, your time, your relationships, and yes, your very life down at Jesus's feet, those things will actually eat you alive. If you build your life around having as much power as you possibly can, you will never have enough. You'll never feel secure. You'll feel like people are coming at you from every single angle. You will be able to trust anyone. If you build your life among, uh, around money and leisure, you're never going to have enough free time. You're never going to feel secure enough in the money that you have. If you think, if I just have this person, if we could just get married, and if I could just set up this life, either you will crush that person with your expectations or you will become a coward, totally afraid to displease them, and you will lose your will. In all of these things, you will die. They will be your slave masters, and you will be headed to a cross that you don't want to head to. But if you follow Jesus to Calvary, if you are willing to say, I will be crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, what Jesus is promising is infinitely better than anything that this world has to offer. And while that sounds like hardship, while that sounds like loss, that is the greatest gift of grace that you could ever imagine. Yes, this is a gospel of free grace, but it's a gospel of costly free grace. And I don't think I can improve upon the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, so I'm just going to read them for you. And I, I beg you to listen closely. Let the Christian live like the rest of the world, they say. Let him model himself on the world's standard in every sphere of life and not aspire to live a different life. That is what we mean by cheap grace. The grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is grace without the cross. But costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs the life of the Son of God. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. 
You see, if you truly see Christ, if you understand with clear eyes that he is the promised Messiah, that he truly is the humble king over absolutely everything, that he is God-made flesh, it will cost you. It will cost you absolutely everything. But in losing everything that the world holds dear, you will gain everything that ultimately matters. In verse 31, Mark tells us, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This word must here communicates a lot. What Jesus is saying here is that there's no way that he could be the Christ that the people need unless he suffers. That the kingdom of God could not actually come unless Jesus was betrayed into the hands of sinners, unless he was rejected and he died. And not only that, but that he is planning to die, that this was his plan all along, that this is the very reason why Jesus came. You see, throughout the whole Old Testament, there's this crazy, uneasy, unsolved tension. God says that he will by no means clear the guilty and on the other hand, he says, I have taken your sins as far as the east is from the west, and I remember them no more. He says this over and over and over again. What in the world could this possibly mean? How can God be both just and gracious? How can he be holy and merciful? The only way is that he himself would have to become a man. He would have to live the life that you and I were unable to live. He would have to die the death that each and each and every one of us deserve to die so that we sinners could be rescued and welcomed into the family of God. He paid that debt that we could not pay, and he paid it in full so that you and I could be saved by grace. Not that we could be given an example or a set of rules to follow so that we could enter into heaven one day, but so that we could be welcomed freely as a gift. And I just don't know if there's a better way to spend your Christmas break and by contemplating the answer to the question, who do you say that I am? In light of all of these things, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he to you? If you're a believer in this room, what might it look like for you to more completely surrender everything to the humble king who didn't come to crush you, but who instead came to be crushed for you so that his punishment could bring you peace? My friends, this humble king, he's come, and he's come to die so that wretched sinners could be justified and welcomed in as his brothers and sisters. Let me pray for us. God, I pray for each and every person in this room that if I said anything that wasn't from you, that nobody would remember it. God, but in these moments that your spirit would speak to each and every one of us, that you would give us clear eyes to see who Jesus is, what he came to do, and why he's worth laying down absolutely everything for. God, we have all been like that blind man who sees people as trees walking. In so many ways, we don't even know our blind spots now. But God, I pray that you would expose them so that you could give us clear eyes to see the light of the glory of the gospel of God in the face of Christ. That we, with unveiled faces, would be able to say, I once was blind, 
but now I see. Praise God for the amazing grace that was shown to me. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.